Hi, this is Matthias from the Common Thread Podcast. I'm here with uh, Kobe in Washington, D.C., and we are sitting here with uh, Aaron Frank, who is a BU graduate and uh, works as, a, as an analyst here at, uh, at Rand Corp. Thank you for thank you for being so willing to, to talk to us. You're welcome. Um, just just to start off, because you have uh, you have quite the background. What what is your what is your field of specialization? Uh, my field of specialization is um, at RAND is called information science. Uh, within that slice of it, my actual background is is an emerging field called computational social science. Uh, the short version of it is I look at social systems as complex systems, and I study them primarily through um, computational simulations or what are often called agent-based models or artificial societies. Interesting, and so, and so, um, if I understand correctly, you you graduated from BU in political science. What what led to your interest in that particular field? Um, political. I always had I always had a longstanding interest in um, national security, okay. and um, BU was um, certainly spectacular in that in that arena, uh, in terms of just the the opportunities and the options and the faculty. So I did political science, focusing primarily on international relations there. So yeah, afterwards, I started working. I also did a master's degree in security studies, uh, continuing in that interest. My, my interest then was primarily international relations, almost all qualitative work, history, right. case studies. Uh, I worked for them, uh, you know, contract work um, for Office of Net Assessment and uh, um, other things, a lot of work designing and uh, performing uh, war games mm-hmm. for the for the government, which got me into notions of complex systems and um, and sort of more formal computational models, for which I had always been very averse to um, sort of traditional quantitative right. um, social science. But looking at it from a computational perspective, the idea of being able to rerun history with a very agent-centric view, the, the notion that human choices and motivations actually matter and it's not the arrangement of large structural properties that determine outcomes was uh, much more intuitive to me given my, my interest in proximity to policy. Policy, we assume choices matter. Mm-hmm. So we, we need our analytic tools to reflect that or right. else we're not, we're not doing much to, much to help them. Can you, uh, <clears throat> can you elaborate just to establish a base of understanding on war games themselves and, and the way they function in policy making uh, and policy advising for the government? Sure. There's uh, war games. There are a lot of ways to look at them. A, a simple way is to divide them into two categories. One are training games. These are games that are created in simulations that that you'll 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 use um, usually at more tactical levels, like individual soldiers getting ready to deploy overseas, where the purpose of the game is to um, have them experience something and learn and learn and learn a predefined lesson. Mm-hmm. Um, these tank games tend to be very structured, very, uh, um, um, I would say, almost almost limiting on what the player's options are, largely because you're trying to get them to see a particular thing and, and learn how to perform something or learn how to interpret something um, in a way that's consistent with the lesson plan. Uh, what, what I've been more involved in, and certainly Rand and where I had been in other places, are what we could usually call research games. These are um, much more open-ended simulation games where uh, we devise a scenario, a set of events. Um, it can be played on a tabletop with miniatures like a game of chess or risk, like a traditional board game. Or it can be more of a seminar where there's some um, presentation and people go back into like, a conference room and they, they try and plan something. Maybe they're, they're developing a military strategy or they're planning out a major... Um, uh, speech for an information campaign trying to hit on key themes because they've been given information about the population audience or something of that kind. These are more done to give people a better understanding of the interrelationships and complexities of problems um, to help the game designers and often the sponsors better understand how the, how players, usually representing real organizations and some you know, real experts, would think about the problem, mm-hmm. how they should frame things, uh, are there new questions that come out of it? Maybe the realization that, you know, we've always believed that the Army and the Air Force would coordinate on this, and then in the game they discover that 
they have no way to talk about that problem. They don't have a common doctrine, a common language. They may not even have the necessary um, uh, communication channels, mm -hmm. uh, either organizationally or sometimes technologically, to exchange information to address a problem. It may be the case that you learn that um, something could be going on and we'd have no even mechanism in the world for, for seeing it. Right. So we would be very vulnerable to surprise. Uh, so the point of, of games in this regard is to really help policymakers better understand both our own capabilities for coping with a problem, understanding the key features of problems in terms of why would make, what would make them very challenging for us to deal with um, or even identify. Um, and another, another type of thing like that, but basically, usually the result of a war game is not a, a rigorous conclusion. It's more, we've learned how to ask better questions. Right. And if we play them enough times under enough sort of controlled experimental conditions, um, then we can begin to say, you know, we repeatedly lose this conflict. We need to um, change the way we thought about this or start making these investments or... Um, we see that you know while we win these conflicts, we repeatedly see that um, this part of uh, a hypothetical adversary's arsenal, weapon systems, are increasingly problematic for us. We need to start planning on that, you know, because odds are if we find it out um, and we say that you know we're having a really hard time with how to deal with, you know, missiles of a certain kind, that's a good thing to know because the odds are adversaries are probably thinking about that too, and they may be buying and building more missiles of that kind. Right. So it's designed to help us um, uh, deal with kind of um, those, those kind of problems. Um, but it's basically, it's one of our, our best, if not kind of only, windows into the mm -hmm. future. So it, it's very much like a simulation game, right. um, but it's one that, that is very loose because it's humans doing it, and, mm -hmm. and so it's very flexible. The downside is um, there's always questions about the quality of the game, the rigor, uh, the bias of the players or the bias of the controllers, but generally um, with, with really careful applied um, effort and, and doing things repeatedly, you can begin to get pretty, pretty good answers, uh, usually in the form of learning more about the problem and asking better questions for the future. Um, so. Anecdotally, for example, one of one of the concrete results of a war, a past war game that, that you cited uh, prior to, to the beginning of this recording, you said that, for example, we had in the first Gulf War we had projected ten thousand American casualties when in fact there were less than there less. I, than, I forget the numbers. Very right, small. It was very small number of casualties, so it didn't ref it didn't reflect the actual reality. So, um, could you talk about how? Uh, an understanding of social systems and of sure. individuals' decisions and uh, the actions of an independent actor in a given arena affect those kinds of projections and how your work specifically tries to incorporate that into a war game analysis, into a projection analysis. Sure. So, um, so yes, yeah, so so those analyses that were done were actually um, uh, done by mathematical force-on-force -force models. And those models made some very um, extreme... Um, assumptions about the behavior of military forces and military units. In the case of Iraq, um, it basically treated Iraqi divisions the same as Soviet divisions. So even though they had the same equipment, uh, the models had no way for accounting for the quality of the training, the quality of leadership, the motivation of the forces, uh, big differences in the environment, and the quality of U.S. forces. We had done some major, major um, investments and improvements in our forces that were also kind of not considered by those models. So we had just um, this, this, you know, a, a set of analytic tools that were really built to evaluate, you know, Cold War, and they weren't made to, to sort of understand uh, a, a conventional conflict and largely in a, in a you know, desert environment, which lacked the kind of cover and, and concealment opportunities. Um, uh, so those were um, sort of big things. Now today, um, one of the big things is with what are called agent-based models, and even just more generally attention to human agency, uh, more of the social, social science side, we're working to do more with accounting for factors like leadership, like training, um, like, like motivation, sort of getting at why are people fighting and why will they continue to fight or will they stop fighting? Um, what are, what are their, their motivations? Um, these aren't so much to be perfect as they are to generate a wider variety of outcomes um, that are more reflective of real-world experience 
in order to understand, um, uh, I say, more likely projections into the future, uh, knowing that, that, that forces will do things that the traditional mathematical models um, or even the sort of um, high-level tabletop games where we make a real, really, I'd say, very bold, strong assumptions um, that all the forces are the same. They're all what we call um, homogenous rather than heterogeneous. Um, in many ways, the military's problem in modeling military forces are identical to the problems that we see in, uh, in economics, mm -hmm. where they assume rational actors, they assume firms operate as a single unit, um, and uh, or in, in international relations where we assume the state is a unified whole. Right. Um, we disregard internal factions within them and the fact mm -hmm. that... Uh, so in many ways, in all, of these, in all of these cases, the fundamental problem is can you disaggregate the actors, mm -hmm. capture the strategic interactions between, within them, not only between them, in order to get to a more plausible, more realistic behaviors um, to better understand the dynamics that the system can produce. And uh, while, you know, your goal is not so much can you make a very precise prediction, but if you keep seeing the same kind of dynamics emerge over and over again, you, you certainly have much more to go on. And, um, and again, it's always, always been the case that, that if you don't put something in the model, you're, um, you're explicitly, you know, the implicit, I would say implicitly, you're stating that its value is zero, that it doesn't contribute. Um, and that's, that's really tough. So either you have to build lots of models exploring different perspectives on the problem, or you can turn things on and off, so set them to zero sometime, leave them out, a different model, different perspective, and begin to triangulate and see where they start to overlap or converge or what comes from, from what sets of assumptions. <coughs> um, you know, or you have to build sort of more complex models that have many more sort of moving parts that are often very hard and traditionally um, science has always drifted towards the simpler the model, the right. better. Right. Um, we're moving a bit away from that, both in the applied arena, because um, policymakers and and people who work for them, like us, we have to address the problem as the policymakers has to deal with it. We can't substitute a more idealized version of the problem, which is the way science can proceed very slowly, very carefully. Right. Is they can change the problem they've been given to the one that they can answer, right. um, and that that affords you know the the accumulation. Uh, we don't necessarily have that luxury sometimes. One of the things that's that's noticeable about the Iraq War is is the typical explanation of why we got bogged down in in Iraq is because of what you mentioned, which is that we're we're accustomed to looking at the state as unified whole, and and we underestimated the degree to which factions would participate in violence. Um, once we once we actually um, entered Baghdad, um, so as a policymaker, how do you respond to those changes in, in, in a in a timely fashion to to advise policymakers on on how to change strategy in the middle of a war that's already begun? So, that's that's a that's a very good question. Uh, I don't know what the you know, um, I'll take a step back and let's leave the case of a war and let's speak a little bit more more generally. Sure. Um, policy is fundamentally about um, collective action and forming coalitions and agreeing. Everybody can agree to go do something. Uh, that's why rhetoric, that's why narratives are very, very powerful at shaping policy. Um, once policymakers commit to a course of action, it is very difficult to get them to back out of that mm. and, and, and change. Right? It, it's an awful lot of work for them. To get everybody to move, to move the entire machinery of the government uh, in one direction, that to back out and change it is, is very hard. Um, so, generally, when it comes to the relationship between policy and analysis, um, once policymakers are committed, analysis tends to have a much uh, weaker effect. Mm -hmm. um, it's much, it's much, you know, you you you're much better off as an analyst getting to policymakers before they've committed to something than after. So in terms of getting them to change a course of action, they effectively have to be willing to abandon their position, often means abandoning whatever, abandoning whatever promises and commitments they've made along with it. Um, and that's very hard to do. Um, you know, strong policymakers, um, you know, flexible ones who are very good at moving entire coalitions, not just themselves, 
can do that if they're autonomous. If they have all the power to make all decisions, they can be act much more freely. If they're dependent on others, right? If they're the State Department that depends on the Department of Defense, which depends on, you know, the President and the Congress, and, and you have this, and you know, it's very, very tough to, to kind of get off of a bad path and onto a better one. Um, also, the problem is that it's not just convincing policymakers they have a problem. It's convincing them that there's a better course of action. Right. They know they're choosing between basically a lot of bad choices. Mm-hmm. If, if, if it was an easy thing to do, it would have already been done. It, bluntly, the way our government is set up, um, uh, you know, by the time there's a problem for the government to deal with, it means that usually the market system has not been able to address it effectively. Um, NGOs and other sort of committed actors have not been able to get wrestle get any of it. So by the time we're looking at moving the entire government to address a problem, it's got to be pretty bad. Mm-hmm. So um, it, it, there's a certain amount, I think, of um, of uh, a challenge there, uh, just in the sense that they deal with really big, really hard problems when you really get into right. the details of it. Uh, analysis can help, but it, but once there's a problem, it's really it's you know now you're behind. Right. Um, and so, unless you convince them that what they're doing is failing and going to fail miserably and be much worse than things that are uh, maybe painful to change to now, but would be better off, um, it's good thing. but usually if authorities are divided, it's no longer convincing a policymaker, it's convincing many of them. Right. Do you, um, in, in the target for, for your research, you know, for RAND collectively and then you specifically, um, I imagine you have to distinguish between which policymakers you're addressing, um, because in, in some cases if you're dealing with a policymaker who's, a, let's say, an office holder, um, someone who's not an appointee or, or a career service person and let's say, the Department of Defense or the Department of State, then you're dealing with a lot more uh, inertia in terms of willingness to change, right? Um, do you take that into account when you're when you're formulating your policy recommendations? So the good news for me is most of my work is fairly um, fairly removed from the current agenda of senior policymakers. Okay. Um, and, uh, so that's a level of pressure right and attention <laughs> that you you you, you know. You don't always need. Um, I mean, I've been in some cases where my work, my work has gone to. I mean, I've I've had work that's gone to very senior le- senior levels. Yeah. Uh, less so for making particular recommendations, largely because the organizations I've tended to do a lot of work with don't make recommendations. Okay. Um, um, one of the things is is you know um, the intelligence community, for example, they don't make policy. They do not recommend policy. Right. Uh, they will run out of the room. Um, right, right. You know, when asked to, you know, what they do is they try to inform policymakers, right. explain to them what the, what the problems are, and when asked to evaluate options, they will say, "This is what we think likely will happen," yeah. um, based on usually based on looking at the behavior of the other side, yes. right. because they can't really examine U.S. actions or capabilities, except in sort of very narrow circumstances. Now there are caveats to all of that, but that's the general. The general pattern. So I've done a lot of work with supporting analysts, helping them frame problems, helping them try and get ahead. But most of our work that I've been involved in has been at that, what's over the horizon, how do we identify and characterize problems um, that are not yet on the daily agenda of policymakers, but in a year or in a couple of years um, are going to be the kind of thing that they're going to have to make decisions about. So I've been lucky in that regard that, that the work that I've done has been closer more to research, uh, still applied, still very focused on what, what the policymaker needs, but not focused on what are we going to do in Iraq today yeah. or tomorrow. Yeah. Um, I've, you know, the occasional times I've come up against those kinds of things, you, you, you do have to have some awareness of um, what the positions have been of sort of the the people you're, you're supporting, um, not in a not in a deep sense. In fact, you know, I think that that you get somewhat, you know, there's been cases where you know you can get in trouble for for doing too much investigation of, you know, um, of the side, especially uh, in odd sort of cases of um, divided authorities of the government. Um, okay, sorry, um, can you elaborate on that? So, yeah. for example. Um, Prior to coming to RAND, I worked for another organization, and we worked um, for the executive branch. 
and there was a congressional commission that had been conducted um, uh, looking at the future of something. And um, we were kind of asked to help prepare the executive branch for the questions from the commissioners. But there was a great sensitivity to the fact that we could not really investigate what the mm. congressional branch was going to, to ask because you can't have an executive branch organization or someone acting on executive branch authorities investigating the legislative right. branch. Uh, right. yeah. So yeah. even though we're there to support yeah. executive branch answering you know, legislative branch questions, so you can get to very weird things right. um, yeah. with, with those. But generally, the more you know about your customer, what their interests are, what their worldviews are, the better is. A lot of my work has been focused on how do you make analysis more effective. Mm-hmm. Right. So, so a lot of my work is more in the domains of what we call tradecraft or methodology, mm-hmm. and it's a lot at, at um, you know, if I have a model of the world, if I think about the world one way, and I run into a policymaker's office, and they don't think about the world the same way, mm-hmm. you know, getting into a fight where I say my model works better than your model is not going to have a good outcome. Right. right. <laughs> Generally speaking, <laughs> probably not. You might be right. Yeah. Right. You might make much better predictions. But the fact of the matter is, is that you know, if they if 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 they don't care to listen to you, if you speak a different language than them, you're not helping. So I've always talked to people about you know not wanting to become the department of we told you so. <laughs> um, so it's much better to focus on if you can show them that you know if, if you try and understand what are their assumptions about the world, how do they frame the problem, how do they see it, work through the problem through that lens first. And then go back and say, okay, this is what we'd expect, kind of using, you know, the assumptions that you gave us or your initial, you know, conditions. And then if we change this assumption a little bit and we change this one, you can walk them into kind of new perspectives Mm -hmm. and at least get them to hear it and at least try and earn their trust. You know, Mm -hmm. one of the biggest uh, breakdowns and a lot of the work that's been done is it's not a matter of giving policymakers really good information. They, They reject that. It's a matter of giving them information from someone that they trust. So half of analysis really has to be focused on earning the trust of decision makers. In intelligence, it's called the producer-consumer yeah. relationship. So you really want to focus on, um, you know, there's a lot of work in the intel community on how do we be more accurate? How do we predict better? But most of the intelligence is ignored. Right. So why not start with, you know, so the, you know if you look at, at where you have your biggest room for improvement, it's actually not in how do we be more accurate, it's how do we be more relevant? Mm-hmm. How do we produce information that's more likely to be consumed and be considered a useful input into the policy process rather than a higher quality predictive output? And in many cases, those two things may even be at odds with each other. Um, if I look at analysis as an input to policy, I may find lots of ways to contribute, which has nothing to do with how accurate I am. It may have to do with the fact that I can now encourage the kind of conversations between multiple stakeholders that need to happen to form an effective coalition for policy. And maybe that I can define the measures of what the policy effectiveness needs to be um, so that people know why they're joining some kind of coalition ready to expend national resources to pursue it uh, and know when they may want to revisit that position or change their approach if they've got some understanding of, of actual articulated measures as to what they're trying to accomplish from it. If you can do those things, you can do a lot to help policy, which often have nothing to do with being accurate. Right. right so right. those are those are ways that I think we can do a better job of of supporting policy, um, especially now that policymaking is becoming increasingly complex. Right. Most of the problems that that policymakers deal with now are not limited to a single department, a single office, um, a, even a single you know regional you know. Theater. I mean, there's almost nothing having to do with ISIS, which is constrained to CENTCOM. Right. You know, yep. Those right, those, those soldiers are are are, are global. Um, certainly, when they start to go home, you know, those those that choose to, to, to not to not stay and fight but go home are going to go back to Europe. They're going to go back to Asia. They're going to come go back somewhere else. So there needs to be a really a global coalition in action to, to deal with that kind of problem. Um, so we see more and more the kind of problems we deal with are many stakeholders have to actually work in concert uh, together to deal with it. It's no longer, you know, the commander or the general or the president 
um, has full say in how things get done. Um, and so that, that, that goes back to how do you uh, be much more effective in, in supporting policy. Um, one, of the thing, one of the things that, uh, that we took a look at prior to coming to talk to you is um, this, pap this paper that you, you co-authored on DIA data analysis. And specifically, specifically, a lot of the recommendations that, you know, we looked at the executive summary, it's not like we delved deep into the data or anything like that. We didn't pour over your research in that sense. But what struck me in looking at your conclusions was the first one was that data scientists need to collaborate. And, 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 you, and you said, and you told, you told me, and when I asked you some questions beforehand, that a lot of these, pe a lot of these people who, who work in data science specifically may not understand exactly what they're doing. So is this a question? So is this a question of, of communication, just in terms of establishing the the groundwork and the framework for what exactly people are doing in terms of data analysis, or is it does it go beyond that? Is it more of a systemic problem? Uh, it's a systemic problem in, in the sense that um, there's this mystique that um, well, one data science is a very broad field, a broad, a broad set of terms. Um, and that's one of the things that we actually worked for in that paper was helping to give DIA a working definition of it. Um, if you just take it as most narrowest definition, which is this sort of intersection between um, uh, statistics and computer science and, and programming, you know, right, so you have this sort of machine learning center of it, but that's not all of it. Um, even in that area, you'll tend to find people who are strong in one set of skills or the other. Um, very few people are really top-notch in, 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 in both the programming side and all the statistics. Um, certainly there are, there, are, there are some, but those are, the, 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 generally you're going to hire data scientists in teams. Mm -hmm. um, as you stretch that out and begin to get involved in data science is really some analytic activity designed to support the organization's needs of making better decisions. Um, so that means it's a decision support activity. It means that it's, um, um, it has to be attuned to organizational behavior issues, either because it is um, supporting the organization itself and how it's going to make choices, um, or it's going to um, be, in the case of certainly in the intelligence community, assessing another organization and trying to understand what, how that organization behaves. So generally what will happen is that um, projects will go forward where they, they'll try and take a computer scientist or a mathematician um, and um, say, go support this analyst who's looking at something. Maybe it's a, you know, a, 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 a question of, uh, we'll just say, maybe something like um, public opinion in a foreign country, mm -hmm. right? Does the leader have, have, have real public support or, or, or are they hiding the fact that, that they're not very popular um, um, and so, right, you know, uh, uh, so well, the problem will be ultimately that you'll get a lot of data, but it's data about people. Um, and you'll have a mathematician or computer scientist trying to interpret all that data. Um, if you don't put into that team, not as someone who's all outside of it going to use their work, but someone in that team who really understands, okay, this was data collected by surveys or polls or on-the-ground observation, some kind of ethnographic look, whatever it is, you need to have people with a trained look and understanding of social sciences and social theory um, to be a part of that team and not just receive it afterwards to ensure that the, that the models being built and the way the data is being analyzed is consistent with both the needs of doing analysis for supporting policy or supporting the organization and an appropriate use of the way that data is being gathered, right? Looking at survey data is very different than looking at computer logs. Um, you may use a lot of the same techniques, but the fact of the matter is, is when you ask somebody why they're going down to the, you know, the corner, um, you know, they're probably going to say, well, you know, they're probably going to say, I'm going to meet my mistress or buy drugs. Right, right, right. You right. know, right? You know, you know, if they are, they're probably not doing that. They yeah, just want yeah. <laughs> so, um, so there's a, so there's a socially mediated boundary for all the data that we really take in about people, about human behavior, about what they're trying to show or not show. So there's sort of strategic interaction between people's behavior and what they're willing to show about it and, and, and show it to whom. And so you really need people who have some grounding in that when you start applying data science to intelligence community needs, which are largely focused on understanding the behavior of 
of, of foreign organizations and states and people or other kind of things. Um, so that was really one of the things that we really emphasized was the sort of atheoretic, sort of pure induction look at machine learning. Very helpful for large data sets, some really good properties of it, it got some spectacular opportunities. And in some domains, maybe all you need. But it will tend to be for the domains that the intelligence community has to work with, that the government needs and that policy really requires, will require an additional understanding of people who have some formal expertise and training in, in, in the social sciences, in organizational behavior, in the history of the country they're looking at, something of the sort, um, and not just have them be bolted onto a project at the end, um, but really be a part of those teams the entire way through. So that was something that, and that's you know, certainly been borne out in my experiences and experiences of others. It also has been the case that, um, I'd say more, more generally, you can see um, in many sort of data science, right? Ten years ago, there was nothing called data science. Right. Mm -hmm. People who were doing it were, were, were always doing it, but they were coming from fields of computer science, but they were also coming from physics and epidemiology and economics and political science. They were all coming from other fields, and they, so... While they were these incredible methodologists and great with data and, 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 and other techniques, they also had some grounding in some sort of set of theory. They were experts in something. Mm -hmm. Today, we're training a lot of people who are coming out as just methodologists. And they don't have expertise in anything else. So they may know how the mechanics of how to use all the algorithms and stuff, but they don't necessarily have all the problem-solving expertise of knowing what to use when um, and what are the implications, particularly when attached to a real-world problem, of making a certain certain choice, right? I mean, can you model the, the spread of ideas the way you model a virus? Well, mm -hmm. maybe, maybe not. Right. Some, you know, those are yeah. kind of things where there's real expertise are required to figure out how you're gonna, gonna, gonna apply those models. You can make the math work at almost mm -hmm. any time. Yeah. But it doesn't mean that you're gonna make the right kind of inferences from it that right. are actually useful, helpful, uh, or, or correct, proper. So, so just just to clarify real quick on, on this point is that, are you saying that there are, are sort of um, additional links being added to to the intelligence cycle? Where right, so you have producers and consumers, and within the producers, you, you used to, to to cultivate data and sort of deliver it to the people who had to analyze it, and then, and then the analysts deliver those results. And what you're saying is, we're right now because of advances in technology, we're sort of adding adding another uh, element to the producer side, which is which is extremely rigorously focused on, on data and mechanics itself. So this is, a, this is actually a great question. There's a lot of debate about this. Um, there's what's called the intelligence cycle. That's yeah. um, a sort of standard model. Um, uh, one of the leading critics of it uh, just retired from BU. Oh, um, but but Art, Art Holnick uh, was there and Art, Art Spectacular on it. And he wrote a lot about sort of what was broken about the intelligence cycle. Um, the intelligence cycle sort of begins with the idea that the intelligence community is tasked. Policymakers tell the community, we want to know yeah. X, Y, Z. Yeah. The community figures out how to collect it. Then they bring it in, they analyze it, and then they disseminate it and write about it, give it back to policy, they take that feedback, and they go in that loop. Right. Um, that's nice, it's structured in order, it starts with the consumer, it starts with policy needs, um, and that's not how it works in the real world. Yeah. Um, so, in the one hand, but there, there is a sort of rational approach to it, which is we gather information um, that meets the needs of policymakers. So on the one hand, um, data science can supercharge that in the sense of gathering more information and uh, uh, doing more. And then there are pieces within those, those different links. There are sort of sub-pieces. For example, there's a difference between collection and analysis. In between, there's often what's called... Uh, um, uh, processing and exploitation, um, where you can, use that. So, so there's areas where you can insert new data science and other just sort of computational capabilities mm -hmm. to enhance each of those steps. Um, you can do a lot more to give policymakers new tools for learning what they really care about and communicating what they care about so that you can do a better job more focusing your collection. There are also additional perspectives that says, you know, we, we, we can collect a lot, look at it, try and find things that we think will interest policymakers. Mm -hmm. And so there you're moving the initiative from sort of that initial tasking away from the policymakers telling you what they want to know to you telling policymakers what you think is interesting. 
And that's a different type of collection paradigm. It's a whole new sort of way of thinking about. That tends to be a lot closer anyways. Um, but there's that sort of give and take, right? There's, so when policymakers are committed to something, they want you to go get them the information they need to tell them that they're, that they're being successful and do they have to change course of action or not. Um, when policymakers haven't yet thought about something, you, they're much more open to, you may need to keep an eye on this. You know, Now, usually if it means taking attention away from something you really want to go do, it becomes a lot of prove it. Right. I don't. Yeah. I don't want to believe that that you've identified something and I have to start considering because I already got enough to worry about. Don't give me anything else. Right. right. But there. But that's where you can get ahead of a problem, is if you can get their buy-in on something and you have to come to them come to them early. So the Intel community has always had to divide itself between addressing the known requirements, and staying on the frontiers of those things that might come up, to become a problem and trying to prevent surprise. And so, I mean, in many ways, it's sort of like, uh, it's not very different than DARPA or, re or advanced research, where it's what's right on the frontier of what's knowable, what's right on the frontier of what's possible, and keeping policy aware of that. Um, you know, you don't want to sound the alarm every time you discover something could happen because you have the cry wolf problem, mm -hmm. they just stop listening. Right. Yeah. But you, you never want to tell them, you know, if the only warning you give them is after the fact, it's not much warning. So... That's where um, I was thinking. So, so yeah, the, one of the big challenges right now in the Intel community is where does data science fit in and how is it going to change the way the Intel community works? Right. And so oftentimes that breakdown in terms of the, the cry wolf problem and in terms of uh, what, what, what the known requirements are and what, uh, what should be known in terms of information, in terms of intelligence collection, I mean, that, that, that kind of, the breakdown in that kind of dichotomy has happened multiple times recently in recent history. I mean, 9-11 is one instance, for example, in which the, the, the intelligence community was, the onus was put entirely on the intelligence community. So, my, so in that regard, is it, is it, is it difficult for, for, for the intelligence community to kind of navigate that environment knowing that if something goes wrong on that level, it's not going to be anybody else's problem but their own? There's an old saying, there are no um, policy failures. Right. There are only policy successes and intelligence failures. <laughs> um, um, policymakers can always, it's somewhat unfair but, but true, always say, you know, I would have made a better choice had I been told. Right. Um, you know, when they start saying things like actionable intelligence, you know, non-specific, um, that is, um, in many ways, you know, um, those are those are very challenging. It's a very challenging bar to reach because um, at some point, right, we have security, we screen things, we do a lot of things precisely because we cannot predict right. what everyone is going to do to be correct all the time. So, um, uh, yeah, but the intelligence community, it, it's difficult, and, and there's lots of reasons, right? Sometimes you can have a, f sometimes you can be wrong just because no one's listening. Right. You know, right? So, you know, so sometimes, right, you have an intelligence failure because no one listened. Sometimes you have an intelligence failure because you just, you had all the information, but you interpreted it in the wrong way. You had the wrong models. Sometimes you had the right model, but you didn't have the right data, either because you just couldn't get it, because the adversary is very smart and they, they, they hide stuff. Um, you know, the intel community is one of the few places, I think, where it remains where we still have certain cases of no data. There are still problems in the intel community where we just don't have the information we need. What sorts of, what sorts of problems? Um, very exotic, um, you might think about very exotic capabilities that another country might have. Right. Okay. You know, right? the, we, yeah. we know a country's got a, the, country's, the country has expressed interest in weapons of mass destruction. Right. We don't know what their capabilities really are. Right. Um, you know, right, we haven't developed robust collection assets against them. Um, they've got very good, effective counterintelligence programs. They use denial and deception. They hide stuff. Um, they use decoys. They do lots of things. Mm -hmm. um, and they talk uh, a lot, and you don't know what to believe. Right. So the, 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 that's a generic case, but those are the kind of problems where, um, right, you know, machine learning, teaching machines to find stuff, right, machine vision. Uh, when you have a billion images of cats, 
it's pretty easy to teach a computer to find a cat. (laughs) When you only get one or two pictures of some foreign weapon system, you don't have a lot to train the computer to go find more, right? You just don't have, you mm-hmm. don't have the information. So we still have uh, classes of problems that are sort of what we call, you know, very low information or no information problems. Uh, in the Intel community, we have a lot less of that in the more sort of general world. Um, but uh, that that's a place where it's still very, very hard when adversaries are, are deeply committed. Um, you know, and, and so you know we have we have people working you know working hard on that, but mm-hmm. it's but it's a hard it's a it's a it's a hard challenge. Mm-hmm. Um, so you so you could have the right model but not the right information. You could have the right information, the wrong model. You may simply not know how to conceive of the problem. You mm-hmm. may have simply been thinking about the problem the wrong way. Uh, in many ways, 9/11 had a lot of a, a lot of these features. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. You know, aside you know you have all the the breakdown of not being able to share information. So people who Many people did not have the right information. The FBI, the CIA, all had problems communicating with each other. You had different parts of the CIA looking at things in different ways. Same thing with the FBI. Um, same thing with with others. Um, but you also had a general view that that right that that terrorists weren't suicidal. They were going to take a plane to hijack it to make demands and ransom, not crash it into a plane. Now we've had people for 20 years saying this could happen. But that had not yet entered into the analytic construct and mindset of analysts looking at the information. So, except for maybe a couple people, no one was listening to. Um, they couldn't, you know. At every level, you have to sort of move the organization. Right. So, you know, an analyst has an idea. They write something. Their manager reviews it. You know, it's you know to get it out there, get it published. It goes through several layers of review. Mm-hmm. Is it supported well enough? Is it you know creative? Does it contradict the existing analytic line? There's a bunch of sort of criteria that has to go to go through um, before before it decides. I mean, right? You know, one of the things decisions that were made in the Intel community at CIA years ago when Bob Gates went to become mm-hmm. the, the director under the first uh, uh, President Bush. Uh, was the notion of taking all the analyst names off the papers and saying these are not corporate products. Right. And they instituted basically a, a coordination process, a type of peer review. So it was no longer this analyst is, you know, it's no longer this analyst's view of Russia. It's the office, the CIA view of Russia. Uh, and that would go out and they would have to go through an internal peer review. This was regarded at the time as a type of politicization. Mm-hmm. Um, Nowadays, I think it's seen much more as strengthening the the products, and there's some 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 good anecdotes about that um, that show up in some of the reporting. So you know, but trying to get to the idea that the agency speaks with one voice, right? Um, well, in doing so, you have a lot less diversity, mm-hmm. um, and so it's hard. It's hard because because basically, for something really new to make its way, you have to really convince your peers that that it deserves to get out the door. Yeah. Um, with, with intelligence issues, we, we already mentioned the fact that, that oftentimes you're not going to get direct recommendations or, 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 you know, an intelligence community will run from making a recommendation and they'll speak in terms of this will likely happen. Um, in, in terms of the, uh, the publishing of content that is now attributed to the agency, um, that allows, I would assume, um, you know, with dissent, it's 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 hard to, to reconcile dissenting opinions within the agency. How does that change the outcomes within intelligence um, if you don't have the capacity for you know one one producer to put their name on this this view of the situation and another producer to put their name on the alternative view so, of the situation? So there are ways that products get written both within the you know within an agency, but certainly at the interagency level is where those come out. So the national intelligence estimates have a rather elaborate. Um, uh, dissension process, mm-hmm. where basically, um, and it used to be the case that um, I forget what they were—they were footnotes or something—where if the State Department disagreed with the rest of the community, they would have, say, a footnote, mm-hmm. um, and it would be called out in the footnote that they don't concur with this view and they have a different interpretation of the information, yeah. or they may not even agree with the information itself. They may say that is inconsistent mm-hmm. with their sources or something. Um, now I think that those types of disagreements are actually played out much more directly in the text, um, and so if you if 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 the um, 
if the actual uh, documents get read. Yeah. Um, which is the hard part, right? Is that policymakers don't actually read these, mm-hmm. but when they do, I mean, there's, there's stuff in there. I mean, this is this is. Look, I mean, this this has been a big problem. Um, is again going back to is the information relevant? Does it right. need to? Are they using it? Yeah. Um, you know, but when they're read, um, th- there's a much more. You can see where the areas of disagreement are and why they are. The um, the declassified. Um, NIE on I want to say um, it was it was declassified a couple of years ago on Iraqi WMD. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a, an extended discussion of the um, uh, the the, uh, the 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 tubes that were the aluminum tubes that were were they for centrifuges or not? Yeah, rocket bodies or centrifuges, and there's an extended discussion of it. And you can see outright the State Department really resisting the idea that these were for a centrifuge. And they, right. uh, you know, they, so it all plays out there in the text. Right. Yeah. Um, and so, so, you know, the issue is, though, but, it, but, it, but it's explicit. I mean, it goes to review, and, it, and it, is it reasonable? Um, in other kind of things, there are, there are other ways, there are other sort of special products to come out. There are things that, that they used to be called uh, red cells or devil's advocacy, where they sort of adopt the position as sort of a challenge piece. Um, they can be tough because sometimes if, if, if you don't know what the purpose of a red cell is, you may interpret it as real, um, you know, when in fact they're sort of, it's a thought piece. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you have to be very kind of careful how they get interpreted. Um, but, but there are, and sometimes different offices will put out something different. And there can be disagreements over that, um, right? And then there's also to consider um, different different uh, agencies which which conduct intelligence, right? So the the DIA, I mean, you know, I'm talking about bureaucratic fights mm-hmm. essentially, where it, where it, um, the CIA has existed for since like 1947, and the DIA is relatively new uh, in comparison. Um, and so, I, I assume you have some issues with with, or are there issues? I guess I guess is the question between the trust that policymakers have in, in CIA products versus DIA products. And, and also in, in the sense that the DIA is is considered by some a project to wrest control from the CIA of the production of, uh, of, of intelligence resources. So the bigger challenges for DIA have a lot more, I mean I think that, that, that there certainly have been Sort of turf wars between yeah. CIA and, and, and DIA, yeah. um, but the bigger problems that DIA has faced have been much more associated with the relationship with the individual services. Um, as DIA was created initially to kind of oversee naval intelligence and army intelligence right. and air force intelligence, yeah. it's largely centralized a lot of that, okay. and then the service centers kind of had to rebuild. Right. So that's been a very difficult relationship, and now it's much more central DIA, and the um, intelligence functions of the um, right. of the combatant commands. Mm-hmm. Those are where I think there's probably so you're more likely, I would say, right now to see disagreements, say between DIA and PACOM or CENTCOM, mm. okay. than say DIA and CIA. Um, they have very different missions. They have yeah. a very different range. Because we're CIA um, is very focused on the White House, okay, and um, um, and basically the White House and basically the White House representatives for very particular policy matters, NSC level. CIA is in many ways very, from a policy standpoint, very Washington focused mm-hmm. okay. on the policy here, kind of very senior levels. Um, DIA will address intelligence needs from everybody from the Secretary of Defense and President all the way down to deployed military forces, you know, a sergeant in a foxhole that right. wants to know what's over that hill. Right. Um, they have uh, almost uh, an unlimited number of demands on them, and they find it very hard to prioritize or say no because they see themselves as part of the, the war fighters. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, they're a military organization. Um, CIA is very different now. Now it has this whole operations side, which is which is different. Mm-hmm. The analytics side of CIA is very focused on serving the president. Okay. So, 
they will say no to a not a policymaker simply because they don't have the bandwidth and the resources to support everybody. Right. So they're very um, particular, and the way that they get tasked is, is tend to be fairly formal. They'll take in requests for stuff and they'll try and address those, but um, um, but those come through a, a a tasking system, which is well established. Mm-hmm. So office directors and managers at CIA know what their people are working on because they've given them those assignments right. because the tasks have come through their channels. At DIA, tasks have come in through every level of the organization, so people don't always know who's working on what. Right. Um, because, you know, you know and, and the timelines are short and they're operationally involved. So it's a, they're very different organizations. They do have disagreements, particularly on areas where they have overlapping expertise. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, Analyzing foreign militaries would be where you would expect them to have some very different views. Um, you know, um, uh, areas where you'll see again overlap might be cases uh, in the cyber domain, for example. Um, you know, but they tend to have lots of areas where they really don't overlap, so they actually will work together. Um, so it may be the case, say, an economics analyst from CIA. Um, you know. Um, will will maybe work with someone at DIA over um, um, who's an expert on say a particular weapon system figure out how the country's paying for it mm-hmm. um, so those are the kind of things that you you might see and I would say overall you know, I know there's a lot written about sort of the rivalries mm-hmm. yeah but I would say overall my experience that I've seen uh, largely through the work of data you know data science and other work that we've done looking at tasking systems and mm-hmm. stuff um, it's been that there generally is a lot of desire and a lot of demand for the organizations to work together. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, so much so, I think, in many ways that it's it that it's almost overwhelming that they're so busy reviewing each other's work they don't have always have time to do their own. So in many ways, the sort of collaboration kind of pendulum is almost swung too far. That that if you're an analyst and you have 40 hours in the week and 20 of your hours are spent um, basically, peer reviewing another agency's document, um, yeah. you know, you're not writing your own. Yeah. And at some point, policymakers need to also, you know, while it's good to get good quality out, they also want to get independent views. They want it. They want multiple perspectives on something if they want to make a good choice. When everyone in the community is saying the same thing to them and they're all working from the same data, you sort of don't have the the, the, the sort of the rational mm-hmm. scientific foundation, right? Mm-hmm. You know, and so you start getting into areas of of groupthink and you start getting into sort of peer pressure where there's an incredible pressure to be consistent with what everybody else is right. hearing. Right. Um, and so you want to um, encourage a community that that is innovative and allows for dissent. Uh, reason defend, dissent, mm-hmm. right? I mean, dissent based on either sound theory or what's in the data, um, not just dissent for the hell of it. Right. Um, but I think that you you, you want to create environments that have those kinds of, uh, of opportunities. I, I would say rivalry between the agencies is probably, for the most part, a bit healthy. Yeah. It can certainly be overdone, and when you can't share information, that's absolutely critical. Yeah, I think I, I was Then pro- you can get into the, the, the big problems. Right, right. I think that that's probably, that's interesting that, that what you mentioned about the cooperation pendulum, um, because, uh, because you know what you read about a lot is the the operations part of the CIA having conflict with with DOD generally, um, but but that's actually it's really interesting stuff. Um, um, I, w- I wanted to ask a little bit about uh, your work um, on the will to fight um, because I think I, I think that's that's immensely relevant today, especially given current events. I mean, I think the the battle the battle of Mosul or the non battle of mm-hmm. Mosul is a good example of um, I guess conventional you know, an understanding of conventional forces based on equipment and numbers that did not reflect the right. overall cohesiveness of uh, of a fighting force, and and how and how that kind of came about is that a new consideration, or is it uh, or is it something that uh, people have been continually refining over time given the history of battle and so, history of war? So it's something that um, so so I'm working on this project. This is a, a project we have here at Rand. Um, uh, it's, it's being done for the Army where we're trying to come up with um, how do we measure military will to fight. Um, it is something, if you look at the literature, 
um, and say I'm, I'm I'm not the study leader, but I'm, I'm working on working on it as part of the team. Um, there are these sort of waves of big interest in this, mm-hmm. you know, um, following World War One, following World War Two, following a lot, following Vietnam. Um, we did not get kind of a wave of research after, you know, 2003, sort of, which is a you know a bit, um, I guess historically a bit surprising, um, but it certainly it certainly is is now. And there's been some you can see things that there's. Um, probably for about the last five or six years, has finally started to pick up. And uh, questions of morale, questions of cohesion, um, leadership, uh, what motivates people to fight, are, are, are coming back into the research agenda. Um, uh, what, what motivates people to leave the military um, or, or to stay are all um, back on the, the agenda as, as we're looking for, you know. And there are a lot of reasons why. I mean, we have a... a um, an all-volunteer force, mm-hmm. which is which is a big, which is a big, one 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 big thing. We have a um, uh, at this point, we, we really have I think a, a very narrow slice of the population that's been carrying an incredible burden. So the project came about. Uh, my colleagues asked the army two questions, and they decided to combine those questions. In one case, it was, you know, as we look to hand over more and more of the security responsibilities to our allies, um, will they do it? Will they fight? Um, and the other side was as we look towards particular adversaries, and um, um, you know, in the threat of conflict, can we break their will, or do we have to destroy their forces entirely, or can we do things that just make them not want to fight and go home? Mm-hmm. Um, so this was a um, a question that kind of those two questions got combined into so one one larger study. To look at this from sort of national, operational, and tactical levels of, of, of military conflict, I'm sort of on the the modeling side. Look at how do we model this? How do we think about it? How do we think about it in terms of uh, of, of war gaming, in terms of computer models, um, to address some of the problems I talked about earlier with sort of traditional force on force models. Uh, we've got people doing surveys, interviews. Kate, we've done case study research uh, of history, looking at, at lots of examples where. We're not focused on, I think, where we, we do see very high will to fight, which is irregular forces, insurgencies, terrorist organizations, because they're, they're already self-selected right. group of people that are willing to, you know, usually willing to, to, to endure incredible, you know, hardships, you know, and, and violence. Um, um, a little tougher with military because they're such large organizations, and in many cases they're conscripted and other things, so, so are they really willing to fight or not um, is, a, is a big, much bigger bigger question. Um, so that's how that, that project came about, though, to try and answer these questions. I'd say it's consistent with sort of a delayed but consistent with sort of historical wave that tends to happen after conflicts, mm-hmm. particularly after conflicts where we find um, unexpected results. I think that, you know, um, uh, you know, Vietnam, we kept saying again and again and again, the North is going to break. Right. That, right. And they never did. And they weren't going to. Um, and you can find, um, I mean, there's some spectacularly good, you know, RAND papers written at the time saying they're going to keep fighting. Um, I mean, it's, 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 I mean, the whole history of RAND in Vietnam is sort of this odd, right. you know, well, so. Um, um, <laughs> okay, well, so you opened the can of worms. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, we weren't, you know, I wasn't here for, right. I've only been here for less than three years, so <laughs> right, I, yeah, I can't, yeah, you know. But it's a, it's a, it's a, you know, I mean, right, it's, it's a remarkable organization that, that's, that's you know been involved in in uh, you know a lot of the you know national security history of this country, certainly right. the modern history. Yeah. yeah. Um, so so kind of given that history and given that background, how does that how does that inform? Say put it this put it this way. Do you do you have a sense of do you have a sense of history in working here in that regard? Like do you do you, when upon arrival at Rand, like have you read those Vietnam papers, for instance, just to get a sense of the kind of culture? That I hadn't. So I hadn't read those particularly. I mean, uh, um, particularly. Obviously, I was well aware of Rand through my, you know, my studies mm-hmm. in history. I'd worked with Rand people um, over the years as my time as a contractor, doing other things. Um, having, you know, to, to be honest, having grown up in sort of the field that I did, and and in my household where my father worked for another FFRDC, mm-hmm. uh, he was a political scientist, um, um, 
you know, coming to Rand was always a, a, a dream job, and I, I honestly I never thought I'd ever get a chance to come here, and um, just by a variety of circumstances, I, I did. Um, I also became very attracted to Rand, not just because of its national security history, but largely because of its history in the social sciences. Um, you know, Rand in the 50s and the 60s was not just doing policy, it was a it was a patron of basic research in the social sciences. Many of the seminal foundational work of people like Thomas Schelling and Herbert Simon were all done here. Um, and I think that there's a lot of more good history of the social sciences that really put Rand at the center of um, modern science. And um, it, it's... it's um, um, so that was very exciting to me. I mean, now the government's changed, which means our funding has changed, which means we're not the RAND, you know, of the 50s. Right. No, you know, that kind of organization doesn't exist anymore. Um, but we still have incredibly good relationships with the government um, in the sense that as a uh, federally funded research and development center, nonpartisan, not-for-profit, we have unique access. We can work on things that are very different than what I worked on when I was at Booz Allen mm -hmm. or, or BAE. Um, the kind of questions that we can ask, the kind of time we get to study something is very different. Um, and so, I mean, you you feel that sense of history. You 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 feel the weight of that history. You you have people here, a very small number that have been around from the beginning or almost the beginning. We have, unfortunately, we have, you know, colleagues who, are, who have, you know, passed away recently that were here at the foundation. I mean, so um, it's an organization that is, um, right, when I was at Booz Allen, Booz Allen was founded in the World War I mm -hmm. time. So um, there was no one around from the beginning. Rand is young enough that there are still people that remember its creation. Um, it's, it's old enough that most of the people here were not around for that. Right. Um, but you, so you have the sense of history, you know you're a part of that organization, but you know the organization is not the same organization. Right. Mm -hmm. But it still is, as, as I've had a chance to work at lots of other places, um, it's as close to that place as I can imagine there being, and uh, it would be, um, uh, and it's it's a it's it's a lot of fun. The colleagues are spectacular, um, and uh, it's 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 good problems, and it's it's a it's a place where, you know, you have to do work that gets funded, but ideas still matter, and a lot of places I've been, ideas only matter if they're funded here. Um, even if they're not funded, they still ideas still matter, um, which is nice. You know, there, there's there, that that's that's I haven't been anywhere like that. Before. And I bet for for a field like yours that's still emerging and still developing, that's crucial in terms of being able to project forward and being able to pay attention to the kinds of things that you specialized in, especially especially at a doctoral level, right? Yeah, it is. It's 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 good that that um, you know I, I can I can push on things. You know, one of the one of the challenges with Rand is as you leave academia, um, whether you've been in there for a long time and you come here, or you're just graduating and come here. I kind of joke with someone. You know, she she was in astronomy mm -hmm. when she came here, and she's been here for two weeks. And I said, "You are now two weeks out of date with the rest of your field, and you will, <laughs> and you will, you will only get more out of date." You know, because we so we hire people and and we take them out of their their basic research university life and say, "Go do this applied stuff," and do and the work we tend to do is interdisciplinary, and it's um, um, and it's it's all kinds of you know chasing good problems. So, so in many ways, you get to develop a lot of new skills, and you get to try stuff and apply stuff in areas where you may never get to from the university. The downside is is that you're no longer necessarily on the frontiers of your field as it's developing, um, but if you can maintain your ties um, and you can um, um, kind of make the case, um, you know, you can do a lot to keep bringing those ideas in the, the current frontiers of the work back into RAND we can try applying it on our problems. That's something that I really like to do. That's something that I um, uh, would like to see us uh, 
do more of is keeping people grounded in their home discipline communities so they remain current in it so that they can keep on bringing the, those, those evolutions back to us so we can all benefit from them. Um, so it's good that you have a lot of flexibility and you are kind of on the frontiers of a lot of research, but it may not be the research that you started out with. Right. Because uh, if you're coming from a basic research background, it's much tougher to remain involved in that while here. Well, I mean, thank you for uh, thank you for sharing your time with us. We really yeah. appreciate it. And, and explaining stuff and, and, and explaining yeah. stuff that honestly, it's not like it's not like somebody that you get somebody to break this kind of stuff down for you the way that you did. So we really appreciate that. Thank you guys. Yeah. And thanks uh, thanks for having us. Thank you.